Good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jared Lawson. Let me pray for us. We will begin our equipping lesson on work. Father, uh, we love you. We pray that our whole lives would be informed by your scriptures. Our whole lives would be lived in light of our life in your Son. I uh, pray that now as we look just at a key aspect of our lives, the commission we've been given just as human beings to fill the earth and subdue and to work as those made in your image, I pray that we would see very clearly uh, the biblical idea of work, how you've woven into our lives, this, this creation, this world, uh, our work that is meant to reflect you. And so I pray that you would remove any sort of idea that work is just a monotonous task to earn money so that we can buy things and sustain life, and I pray that we would see it as the glorious thing that you have created it to be, something that is done for your glory and reflecting your character. So I pray that you would do that in our short time this morning, and I pray that in your son's holy name, amen. So we've been going through uh, this semester on applied theology, that's what we're calling this semester applied theology, how do we take theology and actually apply it to our lives, so it's a bit more practical uh, and we've been looking specifically uh, a lot of the time at spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, things like that. And while work today isn't necessarily a spiritual discipline, the idea of applied theology also you know, relates to how does theology apply to every part, every area of your life, which especially would include your work, especially would include your work. So this teaching is going to be less, you know, how do I pray? How do I work? You guys already pretty much know that. Rather, what I kind of want to do is show God's design in work. So you already kind of know the how-to, so this will be a little bit less practical, but I rather want to show God's design in work. And I'll just tell you, this entire teaching is basically going to be a distillation of two books that I have, I think, at the end of your notes. I think I put them there, uh, which is Work and Our Labor in the Lord by James Hamilton. He's a professor of biblical theology at uh, Southern Seminary in Kentucky and then Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. So we're going to see a lot of quotes from them. Uh, you could read both those books. This is just a shorter version. Okay, so, uh, and the Bible. The Bible is also the third book I'm working from in this teaching. Uh, you should read that one too. I recommend it. That's not at the end. Uh, so, uh, Tim Keller gives this example in Every Good Endeavor. Uh, Alistair McIntyre wrote a book in the 80s called After Virtue, uh, and he gives this, this example of, he says, imagine I'm standing and waiting for a bus, and a man walks up to me, a young man walks up to me and says this, a guy I don't know walks up to me and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And you, imagine that's you, somebody walks up to you and just says that. You would know, I mean, his sentence makes sense. He's telling you the name, the, the specific name of a common wild duck, but his actions don't make any sense to you. Why did he do it? You can't, you can't figure out who this guy is, why he's doing this, unless you put his actions in the context of a story. Okay, you have to put his actions in the context of a story. So Alistair McIntyre says, I can conclude a few things. Maybe... He is mentally ill, in which case, you know, I need to either help him get somewhere or just ignore him or something like that. Maybe he's just mentally ill. That's why he's walking up to me and randomly saying to this stranger, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. That's one option. That's a story that could be put into. Maybe 
he uh, has mistaken me for someone who came up to him yesterday in the library and said, excuse me, sir, do you know the name of the common wild duck? And he left and he looked it up and then he was walking and saw me and thought it was the guy from the library yesterday. And he thought, there he is, I'll give him the answer, right? That's a story that his actions can be put into. And it would, you know, maybe in, th in that case, you just say, oh, I'm so sorry, you have the wrong person. See, the story determines your actions as well. How should you respond? If he's mentally ill, maybe help him out, you know, to get somewhere else. Uh, or if he's, it's a mistake of case and identity, then you just say, oh, I'm so sorry, you have the wrong person. Or uh, McIntyre was writing this in the 80s. He said, maybe he's a Soviet spy uh, waiting for a prearranged rendezvous and saying this is, this is the code sentence that he's supposed to say to identify him to his contact, in which case you would report him, kill him. I don't know, like, what do you do? I mean, the story that you put it into determines how you are to act. And quite simply, when we look at work, you will never really understand where your work fits in or the value in it or the virtue in it or the purpose behind it unless you put it into a story, and especially for Christians, unless you put it into the story, the Christian story, God's story. So that's the first thing I want to do in our time today. We're going to do two things. Plug our work into God's story, look at work in creation, fall, redemption, and then eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. And then secondly, look more practical. How does the gospel, how does being a Christian actually affect our work? So let's plug this in to the story. When you open your Bible, the first thing you encounter is a God who works, who works for six days and rests on the seventh. A God who says, let there be light, and he creates light, darkness, sun, moon, stars, waters, skies, the land, birds, fish, plants, animals. And every time he works, he stops back and he marvels. He sees and it is good. You see a God working. So instantly that shows us something about work. Work is not bad. It is not a result of the fall. It's not this evil thing that we will one day not have to worry about anymore. Rather, it, is a, it, it flows from the character of our God. It flows from who God is. Our God works, and then we see once he's created the six days and resting, we see we kind of zoom in in the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we see he creates man in his image. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see a God who works and then he creates man and woman in his image to what? Work. Fill the earth, subdue, take dominion over, creates them in his image and immediately commissions them this kind of creation mandate. So again, work is not a result of the fall. Our work is a result of being made in the image of God. That is super, super, super important for you to see. Otherwise, you will live for retirement and live for heaven and imagine heaven as floating on the clouds and playing harps and we're just going to never work again. That is a false idea of work we see before we even get to sin. No sin exists yet. God works. It flows from his character. You're made in his image. And right as a direct result of that is you filling his creation and subduing it for his glory, taking dominion over it, ruling it for his 
glory. So work is not a result of the fall. Our work is a result of being made in the image of God. This is how God has designed work. It flows from his heart. James Hamilton says this, God built a cosmic temple in creation. He builds a cosmic temple where he called creation into being. In that temple, he placed his own image and likeness, you and me, people, men, man and woman created in his image. He then blessed the image and likeness and charged them with the responsibility. Their job was to make the world God made good even better. And that exclamation point he puts there. Think about it. I mean, Fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it, make it flourish, work the garden, keep it, make the creation God made good even better. Being in the image and likeness, mankind was to cultivate the world of vegetation and living creatures in ways reflecting God's own character and creativity. Be blown away from the first two chapters of the scriptures of what you are called to do as a human. Rule over this world in a way that reflects the character of the living God. That's the first thing we see about work, which shows this just inherent dignity to work, shows us a few things. Our work is meant to reflect God's character in creation because God is a God who works and we are put in his creation as his image bearers. We reflect the God who works in our work. So work not only isn't bad, it's incredible. It reflects God's character. Secondly, we see we actually participate. We have the joy, the unthinkable privilege of participating in God's work. We've talked about this before. In creation, if you, if you kind of zoom out and look at the six days of creation, what God is doing is he's creating space in the first three days, and then he's filling that space in days four, five, and six. So we see he creates the space of light and dark, and then he'll fill that with the sun, moon, stars. He creates the space of the seas and the skies, and he fills the seas with fish, fills the sky with birds, creates the land, it fills that with animals, plants, and later humans. And he makes us in his image and tells us, go take dominion over this space. Take these kind of tangled plants and untangle them and make them flourish for God's glory. Work the garden and keep it. We participate in his work. Second thing we see is God is kind of bringing peace in creation to chaos. We see kind of this picture in the first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as he says, let there be light, he brings peace to this chaos. And similarly, almost in a, in, a, in a parallel way, man, we see in Genesis 1.28, God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, take dominion over it, bring peace to chaos. Again, this unthinkable privilege in our work of participating in God's work. James Hamilton again says, work is neither punishment nor cursed drudgery, but an exalted godlike activity. In the first two chapters of the scriptures, we should see this sobering reality of what we are called to do just by being men and women created in his image, by participating in the work of the living, infinitely good and loving God. Another thing we see in creation is that God's complementary design of men and women is essential for work. So we see uh, God makes Adam, man, first, and he 
puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. And then we see it's, it's not good for a man to be alone. It's he's going and working and keeping. It's not good for him to be alone in that. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18. So God does. He creates Eve. Man and woman are meant to fill the earth and subdue together. And even if you think about it, how do you fill the earth with just a guy? You can't, right? Uh, this, it's essential for filling the earth and subduing it, this kind of complementary relationship that God has designed man and woman to live in. Not just that the woman is the baby factory, probably a better way to say that, uh, but, you know, I've already said it. So uh, it's not the only role, but the helper in the filling the earth and the subduing. You see a leader and a helper in that, okay? So our passion about complementarianism here is because we think that's the design God displays for not just, you know, uh, marital relationships and things like that, but for the flourishing, for the work that humans were created to do. So uh, let me give a couple clarifiers uh, before we move on. When I say work, probably should have said this at the beginning. When I say work, I do not mean career. I do not mean leaving your house, getting in a car, drive to an office building, and earning a paycheck and coming home. Notice that's not what the scriptures are saying. Everything that men and women do as humans that is filling the earth and subduing it, that is bringing peace to chaos, that is working for the good of God's creation in a way that reflects his character is the Bible's definition of work. So if I say work and you are staying at home to raise your children, please don't think, oh, you're talking about not me. That is an essential part of work. In fact, we'll see work in a couple minutes completely breaks down as a result of the family being fractured. So if you're retired, if you're single, if you are staying at home with the kids, you are still fulfilling by the very nature of being a human created in the image of God, the command to work. So don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. So... Last thing we see in creation is perhaps the most sobering. Work is meant to cause creation to worship God. Being made in the image of God, again, means the ultimate task of our work is to display God's glory and his character in his creation. Our work is meant to point beyond itself, point beyond itself to its creator. Okay? There is no meaningless work. There is no meaningless work. You are meant to display the work of your creator in your work. James Hamilton again. By charging the man to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, having dominion over other creatures, God was commanding his image bearers, the visible representation of the authority and character of the invisible God, to cover the dry lands with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. There is no meaningless work when your work is reflecting the character of the infinite God. All this, first two chapters of the scriptures. Then we know it doesn't go well in chapter three, so let's look at that. Let's see how the fall affects our work. So there's, that's, that's the design of work, how it's meant to, you know, Work, man, we need more words in English. That's how work is supposed to work in God's good creation and his good design. And then chapter three, we see a man that is meant to, again, reflect God's character in his work, takes the fruit that he's meant to cultivate to point to God, and he points to himself. 
And instead of saying, I want to reflect your glory, I want to reflect my own glory. I want to be the one that decides what is good and what is evil. I want my work to reflect my awesomeness, my great character, not yours. And so we see the fall, and as a result, we see curses specifically over the work of man and woman. Genesis 3, 16 through 19. God speaking, and to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. In filling the earth, there's going to be pain now. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam, to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten uh, the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain shall you eat of it. Okay, now the, the subduing the earth is going to be incredibly painful. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall uh, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you see, in filling the earth, being fruitful and multiplying, now there's pain and childbearing, working the ground and keeping it, the first kind of charge, God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Now thorns and thistles are going to be brought forth rather than just only flourishing that points back to God. So notice, very key, work is not a result of the fall. Painful work is a result of the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. Difficult, tiring, exhausting work, painful work is a result of the fall. So that's the curses. And then we'll, let's look at, I think, five, five results I could think of uh, that come from or how the fall changes our work. First, we've already kind of talked about this. Work, uh, work brings new pain. Or sorry, the fall brings new pain to work. Uh, as Moses or Noah's father sees that they have Noah in Genesis 5, he says this, when Lamech had lived 182 years and father to son, he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So here we have a, several generations post Adam and Eve, and that is how work is characterized. It's painful. Hopefully Noah will bring relief. So there's new pain introduced to work. Number two, the unity of work is broken. We talked about how, how God has, has designed man and woman in this complementary relationship for the flourishing of work, and now we see that that's Broken, rather than uh, man leading, woman being the helper, them filling the earth and subduing together now. One, they're aware that they're naked. It's the first thing they see. They, they become aware that they're naked. The peaceful bliss of the garden is gone. They begin blaming each other. Adam, did you eat of the fruit? This woman you gave me told me. And then what does the woman say? Well, the, the serpent, the snake tempted me. They're blaming each other. And then we saw your desire, he says to the one, will be contrary to your husband, no longer coming alongside as a helper. Now your desire will be contrary to your husband. And he is not going to lead in a loving and caring way. Rather, he is going to rule over you. Right? You see absolute fracturing of the, uh, the complementary relationship. And then we see, even as we go to the next chapter, Cain and Abel, brothers who are meant to work together for the flourishing of God's creation. What happens? Instead of championing one another's work to reflect God's glory, one kills the other. So the unity in work is absolutely broken instantly. That's a result of the fall. Number three, our motivation for work is upended our motivation for work is overturned. We no longer work for God's glory. We work for our own glory. Everyone in this room 
knows the intoxicating pull of accomplishing something in secret and desiring others to look at it and praise your name. Everyone in this room knows that. That's a direct result of the fall. We don't care about the Father who sees in secret. We want the glory. We want our name to be reflected in our work, a direct result of the fall. Number four, work is frustrating and work is futile. Ecclesiastes gives us quite a few verses on this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Chapter two, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. Nice peppy motivational speech. I used to read Ecclesiastes before football games just to really get in there. That's not true. Uh, So you see that work is frustrating. You do all the dishes, next meal, they're all back, right? Why is my back hurting? And I did all this for 27 minutes. Just to do it again. Is there just like, can we just go paper plates and, you know, environment? It's fine, you know. Is that how this all started? Work is frustrating. It just, it keeps coming back, right? Stuff keeps deteriorating as you work really hard at it, and it's futile, like grasping at the wind. Our hard, our hard work is rewarded by thorns as a result of the fall. Our bodies break down. I've sprained my ankles like six times in the past year playing soccer with my one-year-old. I'm not the, you know, college athlete that I used to be when I played college sports for two months, okay? It's, bodies are just breaking down. Uh, that's a result of, of the fall, right? It's a result of our work being cursed. And number five, the greatest curse of the fall is that we are kicked out of the garden. You no longer have fellowship with the one that you were meant to work for. You no longer have the joy of working the garden and keeping it in the presence of the gardener. You are now kicked out of his presence to toil on your own. You have lost the joy of knowing God. That is the greatest curse, overwork, that we're kicked out of his presence. And as the story goes throughout Genesis, you see this downward spiral of work in particular. Again, Cain and Abel. Cain is literally, notice, Cain does the opposite of the creation mandate. Man was made to be fruitful and multiply, multiply life and fill it all over uh, God's good creation. What does Cain do? He takes life. He removes life from creation. The opposite. Man was made to fill the earth and subdue and exercise dominion over the animals and uh, that everything might flourish. And Cain, instead of promoting the flourishing of his brother's work, becomes jealous of it and puts an end to his work. Abel can't work any longer for the flourishing of God's good creation. Man was made in God's image to represent his character and authority on the earth. Whose image is Cain representing? The murderer from the beginning. He does not represent God's character. He represents his father, the devil's character. It's the exact opposite of the creation mandate. One chapter after the fall. We see Noah, the great story, right? Our kids' wallpaper, the happy animals, you know, in the boat. It's great. The great story of Noah. Right after God's incredible redemption, we see Noah in Genesis 9. Noah became, uh, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, right? Very purposeful, Moses showing us here. Another garden 
is sprouting up right after God's incredible act of redemption. Verse 21, what does Noah do with this great garden? Does he work as we were meant to and fill the earth that might reflect God's beautiful character? No, he drank wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Gets a little plastered and gets naked, right? Not, again, reflecting. He plants a garden, again, purposeful not to reflect God's character, to reflect foolishness, to reflect sin. Again, he's working, but for the purposes of sin. And then the greatest story of the downward spiral of work is the Tower of Babel. Notice this, Genesis 11, 3 through 5. What's the commission? Fill the earth. Spread out. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take dominion over it to reflect God's character and glory. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks of stone and bitumen, for mortar. So they're making bricks. They're, they're using God's grace as those made in his image to create new things. What's the purpose? Purpose number or Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heaven and let us make a name for who? Ourselves. A direct attack on what man and woman is meant to do in God's creation. Make his name great. The creator with a capital C. Reflect his character in all of the earth by our work. What are they doing? Let's do this incredible thing. Let's take this new technology, the brick, so that we might be made great. That our name might be made great. And then notice the last line. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their purpose is to directly disobey the commission to fill the earth and subdue it. So they're using their ingenuity, their work, again, for self and not God in direct rebellion. All of these stories are meant to show the downward spiral of work. And yet, we see all throughout the Old Testament how unthinkably merciful our God is to these rebels a God who does not strike Adam and Eve down the second the food is in their mouth, but rather gives them clothes, clothes their nakedness, removes them from the garden so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live like this separated from God forever. We see a merciful God who doesn't instantly kill them and also gives us grace that we might work in the midst of a broken world in a way that brings Peace in a way that brings grace. We see this in Psalm 128, 1 through 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of, your la- uh, of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be with you, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like the fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like the olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So because God is merciful, rebels who brought death into his good creation can still enjoy his good gifts as a result of their work. There's a way to work because of God's mercy. There's a way to still work in this broken creation in a way where you get to actually enjoy the blessing. Not instantly struck dead, not only receiving a curse, but you get to actually enjoy the blessing. And then with books like the Proverbs, we just see God gives wisdom to man and woman that they might live and work well in the midst of this broken world. Again, how merciful is this God? Only 
rebellion he receives as a result of his grace. And yet he gives us a book like the Proverbs showing us how to live wisely in our work. Proverbs 12. I've got a couple here. There's many more. The hands of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 16, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs 14, in all your toil there is profit, but, the mere, but mere talk only ten, or talk tends only to poverty. And perhaps the greatest example of the Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman, as it says on the cover of books in Mardell. Uh, Proverbs 31, which describes this wise, godly Woman, an excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and hands hold the spindle. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to merchants. She looks, well, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat bread, or the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. You see, there's a way to work. By wisdom, God is revealed through his word in a way that fears the Lord, where you can still enjoy the fruits of your labor because God is merciful. The two kind of narratives we see in the Old Testament of this is Joseph and Daniel, both uh, captives in foreign nation, both trust the Lord, both live wisely in light of God's grace to them, and we see them flourishing in these kind of enemy lands and God blessing them, not just for evangelistic opportunities, but for the good of his creation. Right? Joseph saves the known world right, as a famine goes through because of living in the light of God's wisdom. James Hamilton says this, the life described in these blessings of the covenant, the Old Testament holds out the possibility of pre-fall gladness in post-fall gloom. Okay, so sin curses work, but it doesn't eliminate the dignity of work, uh, and it certainly does not eliminate a gracious God who gives wisdom and mercy and grace in the midst of our difficult work. Okay, so that's the fall's effect. God's beautiful design, broken by the fall, yet God is still gracious, overseas, still has purposes in work, purposes for you and me. We're not unmade from the image of God. We remain in the image of God even after the fall, still with this creation mandate. And then we see how redemption heals all the brokenness of work. So we see the God who works, the God of Genesis 1 who works, sends his son, his eternal son, who works to redeem rebellious workers, us who build a, a tie tower, halt. Oh my goodness, am I having a stroke? A tall tower a babel for our own glory. He sends his son to redeem us. Jesus says this, John 15, or John 5, 17. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working, right? The God who works sends his son who works to redeem rebellious workers. And so we see Jesus lives the perfect life. He doesn't 
rebel like we do. He dies the death on our behalf, is raised so that he might bless us, redeem us, pay the penalty for our sin and give us the blessing that we do not deserve. He redeems us. He changes our hearts. We're no longer bound to the chains of sin and brings us into his family. God is now your father. You are, you've been brought back into the garden because the son went under the fiery sword that was guarding the garden. Because of his payment, because of his blood, we can now go back into the presence of God, no longer infinitely separated by our sin. Our sin has been paid for. We can now work again in the presence of God, our Father. See what kind of love this is that we've been called children of God, and so we are. We have been brought back into the garden because the eternal Son has brought us in as sons and daughters, and now we can work in light of this life in him. So Jesus' perfect work, life, death, resurrection, ascension, his perfect work enables our work. Okay, We can now work as we were meant to. The chains of sin have been broken, but, but we still live in a broken world. We have been redeemed. Our hearts have been made new. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Right? Your heart of stone has been removed if you're a Christian. You've been given a heart of flesh. The Spirit dwells within you, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You have been changed. The world is still broken. We're still awaiting the future total redemption of God's good creation. So you hear the term already, not yet. We live in this space where we have been redeemed. We've been brought back into fellowship with God, but we're still waiting until, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and every tear being wiped away. We're still waiting for that day. So now we work as those who have been brought into the kingdom, yet we still live in a broken world. So we see the unity of work has been restored. Uh, again, think about all, all the things that the curse brought on work. Unity broken, Cain and Abel killing each other. Uh, your desire will be contrary to your husband. He will rule over you. And then we get passages like Ephesians 5 that says, uh, Wives, no longer let your desire be contrary to your husband. Rather, submit. Husbands, no longer rule over wickedly and evilly. Rather, love your wife. Lead her like Christ loves the church. You see a restoration. And Instead of Cain and Abel killing each other, or Cain killing Abel, Cain being jealous of the good work of his brother, we get passages like Hebrews 10 that says, stir one another up towards good works. Right? Be in the habit of encouraging one another, things like that. You see this unity being brought back. And again, we've been brought back into fellowship with God. So we still live in a fallen world. There's still thorns and thistles. Uh, as far as I know, uh, childbearing is still painful. I think, I haven't been updated in a while, but as far as I know, it's still painful. And we're still prone to idolatry, right? We don't, we're not perfected yet. We're waiting for that in our resurrection in the, uh, in, at the second coming, but we have been saved from our sin. We're, we, we now have the ability to live as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world, as the city on a hill because of what Christ has done. So redemption doesn't eliminate work, rather it eliminates the chains of idolatry, that surrounded our work, okay? So again, James Hamilton quoted him a lot. At the root level, man's task is to work in such a way that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord is praised, the goodness of God is savored, the character of God is known and enacted. Thus, the work that Adam made impossible by his sin is the work that Jesus has made possible through his death and resurrection and will accomplish when he returns. And the earth 
will indeed be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You can now, as a result of Christ's work, living in light of his work, you can work for the love of the Lord. You can work for the love of your neighbor. I've got a whole bunch of verses there and a a list there. You can work uh, to please God, your Father. You can work in secret knowing that he alone sees and be satisfied that that is your eternal reward. You can work for God's glory. You can do everything in Christ's name. You can pour out your soul and your work to the Lord. And you can work for the love of neighbor. Work hard for the benefit of others, to support ministries, to share with the needy. Uh, You work with a strong work ethic, knowing that laziness is sin. We see that in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. There's this group that just aren't working, and Paul says, have nothing to do with them because they're neglecting what they've been called to do as men and women made in the image of God. You can work as a good testimony for unbelievers, and you can work in a way that uh, doesn't... uh, fall into uh, racial prejudice or high status, looking down on others who aren't as great as you, things like that. Again, all are made one in Christ. Only Christian work, only work done in the light of Christ who works perfectly. Only that can point beyond itself to something, or rather someone greater. Okay, So that's how we live now. And then we await the second coming when, behold, I will make all things new. The new heavens and the new earth, this is really important for you to see, the new heavens and the new earth is not an eternal retirement home. It is not an eternal you know, vacation spot where you are doing nothing. You're floating and you're strumming the harp and things like that. God, again, isn't in his mission to redeem. It's a mission to redeem, not to wipe the dish and start over again with something completely different, rather to get us back to the garden where, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, the new heavens and the new earth. There's not this eternal separation as a result of the fall. We see this in Revelation 21. I won't, I won't read that, but you can just look down at actually verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Look at the curse being completely undone in the second coming. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Work will have no pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Everything bad will come untrue, including the pain of work. Again, remember, work is good. And so in the eternity, in the new creation, in the, in the new heavens and new earth, work will be good, flowing from God's character, perfect, unable to fall away. There will be no serpent in eternity with us. There will be no possibility of tempting us away from glorifying God. James Hamilton. We can scarcely imagine it, but everything that makes work miserable here will be removed. Do you ever just, this is, I'm I'm departing from the quote here. Do you ever just think about things like that? When you're having your quiet time, I, I know we have reading lists. I have a reading list. It's so tempting to just crank through it. Do you ever just stop and think? Everything frustrating about your life will one day be removed. And every longing you've ever had will not be met. It will be infinitely exceeded because of who your God is. Do you ever just think and say, God, this is frustrating. I'm, I'm doing monotonous things. I don't see how this is. No one's seeing this. And it's, it just seems boring. My boss just says whatever. You know, I'm wiping a snot nose. And guess what happens five seconds later? Snot comes out. 
Do you ever just take that before the Lord and say, one day, all this will be taken away. And every long I've ever had will be that much more met. We pray to the God who does far more than we could ever ask or think. Take your frustrations to him, please. Don't just pray what you think you need to pray. Look at the Psalms and go before him and pour out your heart. Even things you think are dumb. He sees it. You don't have to perform. He's the only one you can be totally vulnerable with and know that he's made a way for every possible misstep that you've made in his son. Take those things. Meditate on those things and see if that might change how you approach every single day of your life. Okay, back to the quote. Sorry. We can scarcely imagine it, but everything that makes makes work miserable here will be removed and our sinful concerns about ourselves will be swallowed up in the devotion of the one we serve and all our frustrations that we will have to be doing this task and not that other one that we prefer will be abolished because of the experience of the one who gave us the assignment. All inclinations to evil will have been removed from our hearts and we will enjoy the freedom of wanting to obey, wanting to serve, wanting to do right. And the right that we do will no more be in conflict with needing time with kids or friends or spouse because we will have forever. Never again will we fear that our work is futile, vain, monotonous, meaningless because we will clearly see that the significance of our work springs from the one we serve. You just copy and paste that and read that on your way to work every day and just set your eyes on the things above. Set your eyes on the hope that you have and let that banish the little things that ruin your day as your eyes are set on the God who will remove them. What Adam lost, Adam loses the first garden, Christ regains the second garden, where there's no possibility of Satan ever taking it away. There's another quote I won't read for the sake of time. But that is, that is the story your work is plugged into. It will seem meaningless if you don't see this, if you don't see the God who gave you the assignment, the God who is redeeming where you fall, where you fail, where you turn away. There is no greater story for your work to be plugged into. There it is, okay? Now, practical. Uh, Most of this is from Every Good Endeavor. Again, I I recommend it. These are just my thoughts. There's some extra things, so this is not exhaustive. We say that every time, but this is how does the gospel, how does it actually change uh, your work, how you approach work? First of all, I have here uh, three dangers I thought of in work. There are sinful jobs uh, that don't promote the the flourishing of God's uh, creation. They just promote evil, and you can also do a job sinfully. James Hamilton says, uh, at the most basic level, a righteous job is one that uh, does not exist to commit or promote sin, but to accomplish the task God gave to humanity at the beginning, to fill, subdue, and rule. That doesn't mean everything, you have to agree with everything in a company. Okay, think, think about this. Joseph, Daniel, are working faithfully for really, really, really wicked men. And we get little stories throughout their decades and decades and decades and decades of life, I'm sure. And they're, they're not just, you know, in charge of making sure we have enough grain to feed everybody. They're in charge. They're second in the kingdom, or Daniel's third. He's overseeing a third of the kingdom. I, I guarantee you, they don't agree with everything. 
And when they're told to break the law, they don't. And when they're asked the interpretation of their dreams, they say, God did this, not all these other false gods you follow, right? They witness, but they're not just running around evangelizing all the time. They're just working really faithfully. I guarantee you they don't agree with everything. So you're going to have to think about it. But don't just think, you know, because they came out with this policy that I don't fully agree with, you have to resign or something like that. But there are sinful jobs that you could do sinfully, requires a lot of thought. And then there's overwork, working too much, being a workaholic, forgetting that you're man and not God. You never go to sleep. The point of you needing sleep is to constantly remind you every day that you're not God and you look to him for your strength rather than looking to yourself or underwork. I realize that's not a word. Uh, being lazy. Again, in, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there's this group of idle people. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, rebuke them. They're in sin. And in 2 Thessalonians, they haven't repented. And he says, have nothing to do with them. If anyone doesn't work, he's not going to eat. Okay, laziness is sinful, right? It's direct rebellion against what you've been called to do. So those are the two errors. And then uh, these, how does the gospel change the work? I think I have seven. I don't know if we'll have time for all of them, but we'll go through these. Uh, Work uh, as a Christian. The gospel gives you a new identity in work. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century preacher, pastor in England, was a doctor before he uh, became a Christian and before he became a preacher. And he said, you know, a lot of guys that were, you know, fellow doctors with him, on their gravestones you could put, born a man, died a doctor. Meaning your profession becomes your identity. Okay, and, and think about in this culture, in our culture, you are, what are you asked? What do you want to be when you grow up? You can be anything you want to be. When you're in high school, where do you want to go to college so that you can do something? When you're in college, what do you want to do? Right? There's, those aren't bad questions, but we, we are constantly being pumped with this idea of what you will do is who you will be. Right? There's, a, there's a dangerous, not malicious, but dangerous temptation that your work would become your identity. And that is dangerous because when you succeed, you will be prideful because it's so close to your heart, and when you fail, you will crumble. Uh, there was a, uh, one of my professors at, at Gordon-Conwell uh, was a counselor and told the story of a woman he was counseling whose uh, kids had left the house, and uh, the husband wanted to move, wanted to downsize and move uh, now that all the kids were, were out of the house, and she almost divorced him. She, she did leave him for a while, and the husband had no clue why, and finally, they got down to what was happening is her, her greatest hope and dream was that their house growing up would be the house that her kids and all their friends came to. That was the house where everyone would hang out at. And it happened that growing up, they were the, they were the hub of the friend group. And then once the kids had gone away, that had so become her identity, how she would work as a mother, that she couldn't let go of literally the physical house, though no more kids were in it and no more kids were coming to it. It had become such her identity. Only Christianity, only the gospel, only working in light of Christ can give you another identity that doesn't enslave you to your work. It's the first thing. Only in Christ, when you see you have a new identity, a new one that you live in light of, a new one who gets to declare everything about you, a new one who gets to tell you that you are in your son and only success because the son is only successful, no longer crumbling in failure. Actually, your weakness is something you can boast in because he's your strength, not you. You see that. It totally removes the enslaving nature of our work. That's number one. Gives you new identity. Number two, gives you new meaning and new value to work gives new meaning and new value. 
for the majority of Christian history, there was a very unhelpful divide between sacred work, this, churchy God work, and secular work, you people who just make money with your jobs, right? Very unhelpful. The holy priests, I was telling somebody yesterday, uh, they were asking, like, how does a past, being a pastor affect you just in social settings? And I was like, well, the main one is every dinner, people ask me to pray because they think I have some, like, secret direct line to God, right? People operate in the sacred secular, right? I just, you know, work at a business. You are holy and God loves you clearly because you're one of his pastors. Ridiculous. In fact, Martin Luther was one of the first ones to say, all work is God's work. God could have beamed food on our plates supernaturally, but what does he do? He works through ordinary means. Someone has to milk a cow, I'm out, I'm out of my depth, to put it in a bottle and put it in the store. You know, through ordinary means, all work is God's work. Even manna, what do they, they have to go gather it, right? So Luther was kind of the first one to say, all work is God, God's work. There's no such thing as meaningless work, which means as a Christian, to be working as a Christian, you don't have to have a Bible on your desk or a chosen screensaver, right? To be working as a Christian, you can just work diligently. Again, uh, Joseph and Daniel are great examples of this. If evangelism opportunities come up, that is great. Take those, but you don't have to. Think, think of a pilot. How do you land a plane in a Christian way? You just land it, right? This is sometimes called the ministry of competence. You don't have to get on the thing and say, ladies and gentlemen, you know, uh, we are 10 minutes from descending, and uh, I want you to know you are all under the wrath of God and uh, must repent. You don't have to do that, right? You just land the plane. Be a good pilot, right? Uh, Tim Keller says, we see that being a Christian leads us to see our work not merely as a way to earn money, nor primarily as a means of personal advancement, but as a true calling to serve God and love neighbor, okay? You could just be a faithful worker as a Christian. Yes, take evangelism opportunities. Please do not hear me say that. But there's no extra Christian spiritual stuff you must sprinkle onto your desk. In fact, Christian bumper stickers probably are going to be in bad witness as you drive angrily. And people are like, oh, that person cut me off. Oh, and they're a Christian. Good, right? That's why Parkway doesn't have any Parkway bumper stickers, because you would make the church look bad with your horrible driving skills. Uh, at least that's why I would always shoot down that idea. Uh, number three, I'll run through these. The gospel gives new ethics. Again, we live in the day of it's a fast-paced day. You have to cheat to get ahead. Only the gospel can give you a new ethics, even as, as values in and of themselves are fading away. Values, people believe, are something that I just kind of define what I think is good for myself. Only the gospel gives you a higher standard to live by. Number four, the gospel gives you new hope in work. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote... Uh, other things than Lord of the Rings, and one of the things he, he wrote was this short story of a painter who saw this tree in his mind, and he wanted to paint the tree, but through the frustrations of life, he could only ever get out a leaf, and then he dies, essentially. It's all very poetic, but he dies, and he goes to heaven, and he sees his tree, and it's not just a leaf. In fact, it's the full tree, and even behind it is a forest that he can go and explore, and what Tolkien is getting at there is only as a Christian, only as someone in Christ, only who's, someone whose hope is in the next life can all of your work here make it through all the frustrations that will come through your just human limitations. Keller says this, everyone, uh, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we'll do will make any difference. All good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless, unless 
there is a God. And if the God of the Bible exists and there is true reality beneath and behind this one, this life is not the only life. Then every good endeavor, even the simplest one, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. James Hamilton has a quote there I won't read. Uh, But in this life, you can be okay with every frustrating thing that hinders your longings, knowing that one day all of your longings will be met and far far more. So it gives us a hope. Number five, uh, the gospel allows us to work restfully. Restfully. Number six, witnessfully. I don't know if any of these are words. I just put fully at the end of normal words. And seven, worshipfully. Okay, number five, you can rest knowing that you've been brought back into the garden. Every time, all throughout the scriptures where we see God's presence, we see rest in the garden. We see it uh, as God wants to dwell in the midst of the people in Israel at at the bottom of Sinai. This whole point is follow all these laws so that I can be with you, so that I can dwell in your midst. And what are we told by our Savior? We'll get there in 23 years when we finish Matthew. The last words from Jesus in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. I put my spirit in you to be with you forever. There's not a second of your day that goes by where you are not with the Lord, or he is not with you. Rather, you can work restfully knowing that he reigns. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, I've been quoting him a lot, and Lee Nankervis, I think we have a picture. We announced him, He's he's our next hire. He'll be here in September. He's like flexing real hard in this picture. There he is. Left arm is just, he's just gritting with all his might. Uh, he's worked for two Scottish pastors, and he texted me and said, hey, it's McShane, not McChain. And I said, this is going to be a fun working relationship we're going to have. Uh, so there you go, Lee. I pronounced it correctly. Uh, he says this in his journal. Much peace and rest tonight. Much brokenness under the sense of my exceeding wickedness, which no eye can see but thine. Much persuasion of the sufficiency of Christ and the constancy of his love. Oh, how sweet to work all day for God and then lie down at night under his smiles. And what he means by that isn't, I did an awesome job. You can see that. He's very aware of his weaknesses. He means Christ's work covers all my weaknesses. How sweet that is to rest in his work, not my own. Six and seven, work witnessfully, meaning don't retreat. Don't do the, the witness version of Babel, running away from the big scary world because Disney held a press conference and apparently they've defa- departed the uh, Christian faith. I thought they were Orthodox Christian until like last week. I'm like, oh no, Disney's bad, right? Don't you know, flee the world. Be in the world. The whole point of the design is that you are uh, meant to look different than the dark world as a witness to the Savior that has changed your heart. Why won't you cheat your neighbor to get ahead? Because you have this new ethics. Why do you have this peculiar joy and hope in your life as you work on the most menial task? Because you have a higher hope. You have a new identity. You see that. All of this is meant to be a bright witness as you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth to a very dark world. And then the gospel allows us to work worshipfully. We can now do everything for the glory of God. We've been brought back into fellowship with him. Christ has brought us back to where we know we're a child of the God that we work for now. You have the ability now to worship God in all of your work all the day long because of what Christ has done, bringing us back. We can now again work in a way that reflects his glorious, beautiful character. And where we fail and where we sin, we have a Savior who has covered a multitude of sins. So let me pray, and then we have 
maybe time for a couple questions. Sorry, I was sprinting through that at the end. I can't repent before you guys as going long again. It's just too shameful. Uh, let me pray. This is ridiculous. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Father, we love you. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you do this in our hearts. Lord, that you create, uh, rather, our eyes, uh, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. They would be set on the things above, that we wouldn't look at our own abilities and we wouldn't look at our, what, what is personally satisfying in our work. You're the one who satisfies us. You're the one who's called us to the spaces that we are in for your glory and for your name. And I pray that we would see that and actually rejoice in that, that we get a taste of eternity as we, were, we will want to work, we will want to serve you. I pray that we get that now. And that's only by your spirits. I pray that you would do it in our hearts, that we would work in a way that reflects your character. We would work in a way that glorifies your son, that many would come to know him and that you would be worshipped by them. We pray in his name. Amen.